Thanks for tuning in. This is episode number 166. I want to thank you for taking the time to join me on this episode. I pray that it's a blessing. So we'll just jump right in to this particular one. Um, It's a text and story many of you are familiar with. It's found in John chapter 8 regarding the woman that's taken in adultery. That's a very familiar passage to many, but sometimes familiarity can breed taking things for granted. So my ultimate hope is to impart the magnitude of the moment, and then we will draw upon all that we can from other aspects. So we'll begin reading in John chapter 8. Verses 1 through 11. Now, just so that we don't break into the middle of a sentence, I'm going to read the chapter 7, verse 53, which reads, they, w- eat, they went each to his own house. And then picking up in verse 1 says, But Jesus went to the Mount of Olives. Early in the morning he came again to the temple. All the people came to him, and he sat down and taught them. The scribes and the Pharisees brought a woman who had been caught in adultery, and placing her in the midst, they said to him, Teacher, this woman has been caught in the act of adultery. Now in the law, Moses commanded us to stone such women. What do you say? This they said to test him that they might have some charge to bring against him. Jesus bent down and wrote with his finger on the ground. And as they continued to ask him, he stood up and said to them, Let him who is without sin among you be the first to throw a stone at her. And once more he bent down and wrote on the ground. But when they heard it, They went away one by one, beginning with the older ones. And Jesus was left alone with the woman standing before him. Jesus stood up and said to her, Woman, where are they? Has no one condemned you? She said, No one, Lord. And Jesus said, Neither do I condemn you. Go, and from now on, sin no more. Now, it doesn't say this, but if each went to his own house and Jesus went to the Mount of Olives and the day was spent, then Jesus very likely went to the Mount to pray. In fact, Luke twenty-two thirty-nine tells us that Jesus went out as usual to the Mount of Olives. This was the place in the garden that Jesus spent the night in prayer before his crucifixion. Now we read often that Jesus withdrew from the public to pray. There is interaction that is happening between the Father and Son in prayer. 
And we tend to spend too little time in prayer and too much time worrying or strategizing. Prayer is intentional time spent with God. Prayer can produce peace. It can produce clarity, answers, or it simply can be about fellowshipping with the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. We far too often undervalue prayer. Now, you may be listening and thinking, well, I greatly value prayer. Well, here's a measuring tape for how you value something, the time spent. Now, time is the greatest resource any of us possess. All the fortunes of the world would be given for more time. Now, how you spend your time defines what you value most. So similarly, if you spend little time, it means that you value little. Now, you may say, well, I have friends that I treasure that I rarely get to see. Now, you may appreciate something without giving yourself for it. How healthy would a marriage be if you only spent time together just a few times a year? Your value system is revealed by the time you invest. If you have the opportunity to find a book by E.M. Bounds, it's called The Power of Prayer. I would greatly recommend it. It's a quick read. It's profoundly impacting. But Jesus withdrew often to pray, and here I think it's no different, and it's in the pretext of prayer that we find him exercising wisdom in a moment of great tension and expectation, like the judging of this woman taken in adultery. Now look at verse 2. It says, early Early in the morning, he came again to the temple. All the people came to him, and he sat down and taught them. Now notice that Jesus came early in the morning. Now I've heard for years and agree with the rationale that spend your early morning time with the Lord. And here's why I like that. The compounded distractions of the day haven't weighed on top of you yet. So better clarity, less mind racing, these things can be experienced. You give time to hear God for the moments coming up for the day. It just makes a lot of sense. Now, I also understand that not everyone's clearest times are early morning. Some people do better late night. I think it best just to give God your best. And if God has a preference, then he will tell you that. Now, it says, All the people came to him, and he sat down and taught them. I think we often chase people. Whether it's from good intentions or bad intentions, we could learn from the impact that Jesus has so very often. But people came to him. Now you may say, well, he was Jesus. Well, don't let this idea that because Jesus was God, that means his life is somehow unattainable. 
Remember, Jesus says, as the Father sent me, so I send you. It's John 20, 21. Sure, some people came to Jesus because of what he could do for them, but that didn't stop Jesus from doing. He didn't get offended at them and turn them away. Everyone that came to Jesus got affected by Jesus. Can the same be said by your life? Can it be said that everyone who comes into your sphere of influence is affected in a way that glorifies God? From how we treat them, help them, love them, be kind to them. Are we living our lives in a way that brings honor to the name of Christ? Or oppositely, are we bringing reproach to his great name? Now, this brings us to the meat of the moment in this passage. Verse 3 says, The scribes and the Pharisees brought a woman who had been caught in adultery. And placing her in the midst, they said to him, Teacher, this woman has been caught in the act of adultery. Now, in the law, Moses commanded us to stone such women. So what do you say? Now, notice that it was the religious leaders that brought this woman. Notice a couple things not explicit in the text. We read that they wanted to trap Jesus so they could accuse him. The Bible does tell us that in the next verse, but what we don't read is that they must have been expecting Jesus to want to demonstrate mercy. But by showing mercy, Jesus would have been going against the law of Moses, thereby giving them grounds to accuse him. They were trying to use his mercy and kindness against him. Not just that, but they also took pleasure in the idea of forcing his hand. If they find a biblical ground to force his hand to do something they knew was contrary to his desire, these religious leaders felt they had won a victory. In essence, they wanted to either manipulate him or give ground for accusation. So mercy would make way for accusation, and judgment would make way for manipulation. Now, this is the pharisaical spirit at work. If you work to manipulate people using religion to get your way, you're a Pharisee. Jesus was not easy on the Pharisee. Don't be a Pharisee. Next, notice this woman was caught in adultery. She couldn't lie her way out. She couldn't claim this was just some misunderstanding. She was dead to rights. There was no way out. Jesus bent down and wrote with his finger on the ground. And as they continued to ask him, he stood up and said to them, let him who is without sin among you be the first to throw a stone at her. And once more he bent down and wrote on the ground. But when they heard it, they went away one by one, beginning with the older ones. And Jesus was left alone with a woman standing before him. Now this is a profound moment. Just when the Pharisees and scribes thought 
they had backed Jesus into a corner. He neither gave her a free pass nor enforced judgment. Jesus' action didn't fit the paradigm of what the religious leaders expected. Sometimes what we expect of God doesn't play out like we think. When this happens, we must trust that God's plan is greater than our expectation. I've heard people suggest that Jesus was writing the sins of the religious leaders gathering around them. And when reading them, those realized they were not qualified to cast such judgment. I like that. Let me add this thought. Not only did those gathering possibly see their names and sins written on the ground by Jesus, but I suggest there was a fear of the Lord present in the moment. Now, why would I say that? How many people in our day, knowing our own guilt, still throw stones at another? So this tells me that there was something present in the moment of the fear of the Lord that would cause people to feel the severity of the moment and practice constraint. Now, I don't know if you noticed this, but as I was putting this together, I, I, I noticed it in, in the moment. But it says in verse 8, And once more he bent down and wrote on the ground, verse 9, But when they heard it, they went away one by one, beginning with the older ones. Now, that's kind of fascinating. I don't have an answer for you, but just something to think on. Jesus is writing on the ground. But you would expect them to it to say, but when they saw it or when they read it. But verse 9, it says, but when they heard it. So I think perhaps... There was something happening in the moment that they had that they had access to that reinforced the like I said severity the intensity of the moment the a fear of the Lord Now I want to point out just a couple other closing thoughts and the significance of this whole moment Now, verse 10 says, Jesus stood up and said to her, Woman, where are they? Has no one condemned you? She said, None, no one, Lord. And Jesus said, Neither do I condemn you. Go, and from now on, sin no more. So no one remained to accuse her after her guilt had been revealed. But what should cause us to praise the Lord and also meditate on the implications is that of all the people who could have thrown a stone, Jesus didn't. Now notice, too, Jesus didn't spend time lecturing her on her life choices. He didn't even tell her what she was doing was wrong. Now she knew it was wrong. There was no question to how her choice was the wrong choice, but Jesus simply said, Neither do I condemn you. Go, and from now on, sin no more. Now, I want to leave you with this challenging thought. Jesus said, 
from now on sin no more. Now, would Jesus tell her to do something that wasn't possible? To command someone to do something that they have no ability to do is futility. And that's not how God operates. Now, we see this same thing in John chapter 5 where Jesus healed an invalid of his disorder of 38 years. And after Jesus runs back into the man in John 5.14, it says, Afterward, Jesus found him in the temple and said to him, See, you are well. Sin no more, that nothing worse may happen to you. So two distinct times, Jesus commands someone to sin no more. Now, if it were not possible, would it be a command? Now, the first thing you may think in opposition to this is when John said in 1 John 1, 8, if we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. Now, verse 9 of that portion says then, if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Verse 10 says, If we say we have not sinned, we make him a liar, and his word is not in us. But what if when the Lord said, sin no more, he meant it, and it was possible? Now, how could we reconcile that in light of 1 John 1, 8 through 10? Well, here is how I think that that reconciles. What John is saying in his first epistle is that everyone has sin in their life that they need forgiveness for and that God is faithful and willing to forgive us our sins. But if we try to say we don't need forgiving because we don't have anything to forgive in our lives, then we are calling God a liar. Now, what I don't believe 1 John is saying is that sin will be a part of your daily walk, nor is it something that we should expect we do. So do you see the difference in that? So let us sin no more. Let us us enter into moment by moment in the pretext of prayer, of spending time in fellowship with God in preparation for those moments that we must practice wisdom and discernment to to exercise understanding, to not be forced into corners and positions and stances by, by those that are trying to manipulate people using religious means or otherwise. Let us... Let us not be manipulated in moments by, by others. Let us show grace and compassion and mercy to those who are clearly guilty. Let us exercise forgiveness uh, to one another for however we have wronged one another. Let us, let us not be so quick to point the finger of guilt because, in fact, Jesus did not. He just said, sin no more. And let us think outside of our paradigms of religious framework so, so that we can cling to, to 
what all possibilities are 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 found are discoverable with inside the biblical narrative. I think so many times we we have this understanding that we've been passed down that people have taught and we have we have just thought and and taken to be the case but really when we when we when we take the text for what it says sometimes it seems too good to be true what if we could in those moments take it for what it says so i would challenge you and us to do that to take the biblical text at face value and quit trying to explain away the things that seem too grand for us to comprehend so much to learn in this example in this story of the woman taken in adultery and i pray that god shows you exactly what it is that he would like to uncover in this story for you i thank you for taking the time to join me on it and i uh, would encourage you to dig into god's word there's rich treasures available for any who would seek thank you and we'll see you on the next one god bless I would trade a million lifetimes for a moment here with